profound influence of Emerson on Nietzsche is one of the most underestimated connections in the history of philosophy. As American philosopher Stanley Cavell has put it, no matter how often this connection of Nietzsche to Emerson is stated, no matter how obvious to anyone who cares to verify it, it stays incredible, it is always in a forgotten state. The glaring lack of attention to the relationship between the two thinkers is itself an enigma worthy of inquiry. One obvious reason for the underestimation is its sheer unlikeliness. Not only were the philosophers from different geographical continents, but the two also seemed to occupy completely different continents of the intellect. Emerson was a spiritual, nature-loving transcendentalist, and Nietzsche is one of existentialism's founding fathers, a bombastic, iconoclastic antichrist. Another obvious reason for the lack of attention given to the Emerson-Nietzsche relationship is that there are only two explicit mentions of Emerson in all of Nietzsche's published works, and although these two mentions are provocative, their sheer sparseness makes it easy to dismiss the connection. But peeking behind the curtain of Nietzsche's published works into his public By peeking behind the curtain of Nietzsche's published works, however, into his person by peeking behind the curtain of Nietzsche's by peeking behind the curtain of Nietzsche's published works, however, into his personal library, letters, and manuscripts, a different story begins to take shape. There was a connection between the two, and it was profound. Nietzsche says a lot about Emerson, much of it unusually laudatory. One Nietzschean scholar, Charles Andler, has identified Emerson as one of the prototypes of Zarathustra. Another Nietzschean scholar, Hermann Hummel, goes so far as to say that Emerson was more than a brother soul to Nietzsche, that Emerson was more than a brother soul to Nietzsche, and that he exercised a continuous influence stronger than that of any other writer on Nietzsche. This episode, we're going to look at the secret history of Nietzsche's Emerson connection, and why he speaks so little about him. We're going to explore where this connection manifests in the writing of Nietzsche, and finally, we're going to look at the biographical details that might explain this unusual occurrence of twin souls. Because of the scant mentions of Emerson in his published works, it's hard to quantify the influence of the American philosopher on Nietzsche. Where we see Nietzsche actively wrestle with Schopenhauer and with Kant, with Plato and with Socrates, Emerson does not get the same treatment. Emerson seems to have inhabited a different room of Nietzsche's mind to these other philosophers. Nietzsche never took to attacking him, and though it's clear that he did find faults, he nevertheless feels a deep kinship with him. Nietzsche himself describes Emerson as a twin soul, and commenting on a collection of Emerson's two series of essays, he says, I've never felt so much at home in a book, so much in my own house as... I ought not to praise it. It is too close to me. The kinship with Emerson seems to go deeper than the intellectual facade of philosophizing. In Emerson, Nietzsche finds the ideal of living philosophy. Emerson is the archetypal philosopher-poet who does a wonderful job of bridging the two realms Nietzsche strived his whole career to bridge, art and philosophy. These two aspects are in conflict in Nietzsche throughout his career, from the Apollonian and Dionysian distinction of his first book, The Birth of Tragedy, to the conflict of Dionysus and the Crucified at the end of his career. One simplified way of looking at Nietzsche's philosophy is to say that it is an attempt to marry these separate strains. In one aphorism of the gay science he notes that good prose is written only face to face with poetry, for it is an uninterrupted, well-mannered war with poetry. All of its attractions depend on the way in which poetry is continually avoided and contradicted. Later in the same aphorism, we get Nietzsche's first published mention of Emerson as one of only four masses of prose in their shared 19th century. 
The relationship with Emerson is less like that of other philosophers who he goes sparring with. The relationship with Emerson is less... The relationship with Emerson is less like that of other philosophers who he goes sparring with. Emerson seems to have spoken to a deeper, more personal layer of Nietzsche. The sage of Concord... The sage of Concord seems to have gotten into Nietzsche's bones and shaped his character and his worldview. His conviction that philosophy was something you lived resonated to the depths of Nietzsche's soul. It wasn't the violent upheaval of infatuation that Nietzsche experienced with Schopenhauer and Wagner, but the slow, transformative effect of a lifetime. The relationship with Emerson is less like that of other philosophers who he goes actively sparring with. Emerson seems to have spoken to a deeper, more personal layer of Nietzsche. The sage of Concord seems to have gotten into Nietzsche's bones and shaped his character and his worldview. His conviction that philosophy was something you lived resonated in the depths of Nietzsche's soul. It wasn't the violent upheaval of infatuation that Nietzsche experienced with Schopenhauer and Wagner, but the slow, transformative effect of a long-term, lifelong relationship. You can see this in Nietzsche's interactions with the work of Emerson. The first encounter he had with the works of him You can see this in Nietzsche's interactions with the works of Emerson. The first encounter Nietzsche had with the works You can see this in the You can see this in Nietzsche's interactions with the work of Emerson. The first encounter he had with the American philosopher was as a 17-year-old schoolboy at Schulpforte's school. Jur- you can see this in Nietzsche's interactions with the work of Emerson. The first encounter he had with the American philosopher was as a 17-year-old schoolboy at Schulpforte. During this time, he copied out excerpts from Emerson's works, something he was to do a number of times throughout his life. The most notable occasion was in 1882, the year he wrote The Gay Science and the first part of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. At this time, he copied out a sheaf of excerpts from Emerson's essays, some of them word for word, others summed up or slightly reformulated, and others blended with his own thoughts. Some of them word for word, others summed up or slightly reformulated, and others again blended with Nietzsche's own thoughts. The most tangible instance of Emerson's influence is in Nietzsche's copy of this book. The most tangible instance. Some of them word for word, others summed up or slightly reformulated, and others again blended with Nietzsche's own thoughts. The most tangible instance of Emerson's influence is in Nietzsche's copy of this book of Emerson's essay. As Nietzsche's personal library of books has been preserved, Scholars can study the books and see Nietzsche's notes and annotations on the different books that he read. As Benedetta Zavata has observed in her book on Nietzsche and Emerson, Nietzsche's copy of Emerson's essays stands out as a singular case in Nietzsche's library, with its pages literally covered with his notes over multiple rereadings, with everything from underlinings, question marks and exclamation marks, to dog-eared pages and annotations and philosophical comments in the margins. Another Nietzsche scholar, Edward Baumgarten. Another Nietzsche scholar, Edward Baumgarten, writes that the marginal notes in these crumpled, paper-bound books proceed without any interruption from Emerson's text into Nietzsche's own meditations. 
Talking about this book of essays, he notes that it is thoroughly soiled with much reading, crowded with underlinings and marginal notes. Some of these notes date right up to the end of Nietzsche's career, with Eche Homa being scribbled multiple times in the margins. From Nietzsche's published letters, we know that he always carried a volume of Emerson with him when he travelled, that he lost one at Beirut in 1874, and that he bought translations of Emerson as they appeared. And so we can see a chronological relationship to Emerson from Nietzsche's first acquaintance with him in Shubfort in 1862, right up to the end of his career with Eche Homo in 1889. For more than a quarter of a century, Emerson was the object of Nietzsche's continuing interest. This continued relationship might seem like Nietzsche had an this continued relationship might seem like Nietzsche had an enduring idolization of Emerson, but from his comments we see that this is not the case. To Nietzsche, Emerson is a wayward brother. After all, the metaphysical aspect of Emerson's thought couldn't be further from Nietzsche's own views. The comments on Emerson we have from the published works are instructive in this sense. We see that even Emerson's accolade as the 19th century author, most rich in ideas, becomes something of a vice. Through Jean-Paul, Carlyle has been corrupted. Through Jean-Paul, Carlyle has been corrupted and has become England's worst writer. Through Carlyle, in turn, Emerson, the most gifted of the Americans, has been seduced to a tasteless extravagance, which tosses thoughts and images in handfuls out the window. In December 1884, the time of the composition... In December 1884, Nietzsche wrote to his friend Franz Overbeck, I am having translated into German a long essay of... Emerson's. In December 1884, Nietzsche wrote a letter to his. In December 1884, Nietzsche wrote a letter to his friends Franz Overbeck. I'm having translated into German a long essay of Emerson's, which throws some light on his own development. If you like, it is at you and your wife and. If you like, it is at you and your dear wife's. If you like, it is at you and your dear wife's disposal. I don't know how much I would give to affect retroactively the strict discipline, the real scholarly education of so great and splendid a nature with its spiritual and intellectual wealth. As it is, we have lost the philosopher in Emerson. The deep love that Nietzsche has for Emerson is striking in these comments. You don't get the sense of competition or acrimony, but of a wayward brother, a sense of what could have been. Nietzsche doesn't blame Emerson for his faults, Nietzsche doesn't blame Emerson for his faults, but his education. He sees the perfect clay in Emerson that he only bemoans that he could not mould into its proper form. This is a sort of love Nietzsche show This is a sort of love that Nietzsche shows for no other author and and Nietzsche doesn't blame Emerson for his faults, but his education. He sees the perfect clay in Emerson that he only bemoans that he could not mould into its proper form. This is a sort He sees the perfect clay in Emerson that he only bemoans that he could not mould into its proper form. This is a sort of love that Nietzsche shows for no other author or thinker. It speaks deeply to his sense of a twin soul and someone closer to him than anyone else. So it's obvious that Nietzsche took a lot from Emerson and loved him deeply. But knowing about this love and pointing to all its fruits and the works of Nietzsche requires a much deeper work of literary archaeology than we can go into here. But there are a few core connections that we can make between the two. The most fundamental doctrine of Emerson is self-reliance. His essay on this subject opens with the Latin quotation, Ne te quasi veris extra, which means, do not seek for things outside yourself. 
This is the golden thread that runs through all of Emerson's thinking. He admonishes us to recognise the genius in ourselves and to take nothing at second hand, but to have a personal relationship with life and truth. You can see the influence of this doctrine everywhere in Nietzsche. In many ways, this self-reliance is the essence of Nietzsche. It breathes through all of his work. It is the fundamental ground on which the transvaluation of all values is built. You can even see the influence of Emerson's individualism in the darker, bombastic passages of Nietzsche's later arrogance in Ecce Homo, where he says things like, I know my fate. One day my name will be associated with the memory of something tremendous, a crisis without equal on earth. I am no man, I am dynamite. I never speak to masses. I have a terrible fear that one day I will... I have a terrible fear that one day I will be pronounced holy. You will guess why I published this book before. It shall prevent people from doing mischief with me. You can see the, you can see the influence of Emerson's individualism in here and his vaunting of the potentials for greatness within man and the dangers of misunderstanding to come with this. As he says in Self-Reliance, Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and Gillen. Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton. Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton, and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. Is it easy? It's easy to see how words like this turn to rocket fuel in the heart of Nietzsche. This isn't a brick wall of an argument that Nietzsche can attack with his famous hammer. It's a wind that carries him to the philosophical peaks he aspires to. Emerson feeds the soul of Nietzsche to boldly go where he might, to pioneer new tracks through the mountains of the human soul, to find new revelations and break new ground. In the vaunting of individuals and the denigration of conformity, you can see another very prominent strain of Nietzsche's thinking, and that is the order of rank. It's funny to think that the great American idol, the sage of Concord, could have deeply influenced Nietzsche in his most undemocratic thinking. Nietzsche values the fruit of mankind's greatness over 10,000 men. He believes in an order of rank and a separation of the rabble from the potential stars of the human race. You can see a strain of Emerson's thinking here that Nietzsche has taken to its logical conclusion. Even Nietzsche's most famously heretical statement has a foreshadowing in the controversial address Emerson gave to the Harvard Divinity School in the 1830s that almost prematurely ended his speaking career. In criticising the ways of established religion, Emerson is castigating the ossified nature of traditional religious adherence to ancient traditions of men long dead. He says that men have come to speak of revelation. Men have come to speak of the revelation as somewhat long ago given and done, as if God were dead. This similarity may be superficial, but even if there is no direct influence, Emerson's influence on receiving revelation now and on forming a personal relationship with truth and with nature, these are all themes that resonate deeply throughout Nietzsche's thinking and his writings. Despite the superficial differences between the two, it is obvious that there is a kinship that goes deeper than the trivial differences about metaphysics and intellectual arguments. The, the superficialities of Nietzsche and Emerson are at variance with each other, but the heart that beats and the soul that burns beneath the outer veneer is the same. The superficialities of Nietzsche and Emerson are at variance with each other, but the heart that beats and the soul that burns beneath this outer veneer is the same. Before we wrap up, there's one more question that is worth contemplating. Is there any reason why these two are so similar? What is the source of this deep kinship of these thinkers? 
In this regard, the biographies of these thinkers bear very interesting similarities that may point to a similar psychological soil out of which this type grows. For a start, both men are descended on the paternal and maternal sides from several generations of theologians. Emerson's father was a pastor of the Second Church, Nietzsche's Emerson's father was a pastor of the Second Church, Nietzsche's father was a Lutheran pastor. Emerson's father died when he was eight, Nietzsche's when he was five. The Orthodox Puritanism of New England is not so dissimilar. The Orthodox Puritanism of New England is not so dissimilar to the provincial Orthodox German Lutheranism of Nietzsche's environment. The Orthodox Puritanism of New England is not so dissimilar to the provincial Orthodox German Lutheranism of Nietzsche's environment. Both men's upbringing inclined them towards religious practices and the pursuit of theological studies, and though both studied to become pastors, both fell away. Nietzsche was 22 at university when he switched from studying theology to philology. Emerson finished his studies, but after three years as a pastor, he parted ways with the cloth because he couldn't reconcile himself to the ossified nature of church practices. They both also suffered from poor health. Nietzsche was forced to retire from his post at the University of Basel at the age of 35 under the weight of his health problems, which ranged from stomach ailments and failing eyesight to... They also both suffered from poor health. Nietzsche was forced to retire from his post at the University of Basel at the age of 35 under the weight... They both also suffered... They both also suffered their fair share of health problems. Nietzsche was forced to retire from his post at the University of Basel at the age of 35 under the weight of his health problems, which ranged from stomach ailments and failing eyesight to migraines and chronic insomnia, and his health demanded that he live in specific climates at specific times of the year. When Emerson was in university, he had to spend the summer wintering in the south because of weak lungs and eyes and rheumatism. After leaving the church at age 30, Emerson, troubled by the death of his wife and the death of one of his brothers, and with poor health, sailed to Italy for the winter. From here, there by a from here their biographical paths take different routes. Emerson's career took the gentle course of slowly maturing wisdom that corresponded to the landscape of Concord. Nietzsche, on the other hand, took the steep climbs into the ethereal air of the mountains, scaling the high peaks of human potential, but falling fast and falling far. Though their stories end very differently, I do wonder whether the source of their kinship has something of their shared experience at the hand of the vicissitudes of life. That's everything that I wanted to cover on this episode of The Living Philosophy. If you've enjoyed it, please give us a thumbs up down below and if you're new to the channel, you might like to subscribe. If you have any thoughts, insights or feedback, I'd love to hear from you down in the comments. Otherwise, I shall see you next time. Thank you for watching.